Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm Rob Hopkins, and it's such a delight that you're able to join me here for what's going to be a fascinating episode. This podcast takes your what-if questions and dedicates its heart and soul to finding the very finest people to explore with us how we might move from that what-if question to what next, to it becoming a reality in the real world. Here, everything is possible, and we won't take no or that's impossible to be anything even vaguely resembling a reasonable response. This is a space where we invite you to join Join us on a journey where we sweep aside dystopias and explore what could be. Our question this time is adapted from one sent in by subscriber Pamela Barnes, who asked, what if the economy valued most that which is most important for a sustainable, happy society? I've adapted it slightly to what if we lived in a well-being economy? As the world, we hope, emerges from the COVID-19 pandemic and as people and local governments explore what Build Back Better actually means in reality, polls show an overwhelming support for the idea of not going back to normal. For putting action on climate change first, for moving to an economic model that brings more to our life than simply being larger than it was the year before. The concept of well-being economics is growing rapidly, being explored and even adopted now by national governments, as we'll hear, and is often mentioned in conversations about how to build back better. So that's our exploration today. What if we lived in a well-being economy? We hope that by the end of this podcast you will feel, even if only for half an hour or so, as though you have actually experienced living in a well-being economy. I'm joined by two wonderful guests to assist in this exploration. Dr. Catherine Trebek is an advocacy and influencing lead for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and is co-founder of Wellbeing Economy Alliance Scotland. She's a political economist with over eight years experience for Oxfam GB, including developing the Humankind Index. She sits on a range of advisory boards, holds several academic affiliations and is a distinguished fellow of the Schumacher Institute. She's a member of the Scottish Government's Sustainable Renewal Advisory Group and Zero Waste Scotland's Demystifying Decoupling Advisory Group, which isn't easy to say. Catherine instigated the Wellbeing Economy Government's partnership and her book, The Economics of Arrival, with Jeremy Williams, was published in 2019. Yannick Baudouin is a Director General for Ontario and North Canada with the David Suzuki Foundation. He brings a new economics for transition lens to the organisation to enable the transformation of Canada towards social and ecological sustainability. From circular economy to the sustainable development goals, he's worked to enable context-relevant sustainability approaches all over the world. Most recently, he's been facilitating conversations with decision-makers around the world, highlighting various examples of beyond GDP economics and post-extractivist development paradigms. Yannick holds a PhD in marine geology from the University of Toronto and a master's in economics for transition from Schumacher College here in the UK, just up the road from where we're recording this podcast today. You're both very, very welcome. Oh, happy to be here, Rob. And hi, Yannick. Hi, Catherine. Happy to be here. Thanks, Rob. I'd like to invite you to get comfortable and to close your eyes. And I invite those listening at home to do the same, unless, of course, you're listening to this whilst cycling to work or using industrial machinery of any kind. I'd like you to imagine, thanks to the power of the amazing time machine that I have here that I built during lockdown, that you're travelling forward through time, through the next 10 years, until you arrive in 2030. A 2030 that has emerged as a result of the most remarkable and extraordinary social, 
economic and cultural transition in history. In 2020, it felt unimaginable. But over those years, it has built and built in cascades of positive change. Things that had seemed permanent crumbled. Values shifted, imagination sparked, and the 2030 we emerged into is profoundly changed. It is a low-carbon, sustainable, just, more equal, more delightful place. It's a world in which well-being economics is now the economic model on which the world works. Nobody talks about GDP anymore, an idea like fossil fuels and plastic that can only be seen in museums. Could you take us on a walk through that world in your imagination? A world in which well-being economics is now so mainstream that people don't even use the term anymore. What do you see, hear, feel and smell? Describe that world to us. Yannick. Well, thanks, man. I just woke up. I've been retired now, of course, since there's uh, nothing left to do in 2030 after all this transition. Uh, the uh, the first thing that hit me was uh, I was just listening to the radio, and it's been two years since here in Toronto we've actually had a traffic report. There's no more rush hour traffic, so why would you have a, a traffic report? Um, you know, we've actually one of the big highways that used to split the city in two is called the Gardner, and now, of course, we we turn the Gardner into a garden. Uh, and the whole all across the city. And then instead of having traffic jam, we now have a music jam festival uh, celebrating two years without a traffic jam. Also, we've just marked a third anniversary of the uh, last homeless person in Canada who was supported into decent and dignified housing. So that's a pretty big milestone uh, after all this. I think what's also really been interesting is to notice the shift in the real estate kind of market, the mix of who occupies which kind of office in, in the city. Uh, of course, Toronto being one of the financial hubs of the world, one of the, the big one in, in Canada anyways. Uh, and that's all kind of disappeared now because, of course, the, the conventional financial services don't really have as big a role or really any big role going on. So suddenly we've decided over the last little while to kind of value the 99% and really unleash the full creativity of, of all of humanity. And so all these workspaces that used to be occupied by big banks are now, of course, being redirected and used for creative spaces of all sorts, you know, whether it's technical or artistry or et cetera. So, I, you know, I'm lucky. I was, you know, back in 2020, way back when, I was part of the 1% who was allowed to be, you know, expected to be creative every day. Now, of course, the 99% get to be uh, creative and, and all that. So that's really beautiful to see. An incredible milestone, too, about five years now since a police officer in Canada has ever shot a person of color or uh, anybody else for that matter. Uh, because we've redefined the entire concept of policing around concepts of well-being and dignity and uh, and connection and all that. You know, on the world stage, what's been interesting to sort of see is it took a while, but uh, through a lot of different pressures, we're noticing, uh, number one, all the UN member states, the UN, of course, now being uh, led by uh, an incredible uh, woman of color, has actually uh, agreed to a 10-year moratorium on male and white leaders. Uh, so that's been absolutely fantastic to see because that allows now a new space to happen and new perspectives to come in as we're working to redefine 2,000 years of a very particular kind of structure and, and patriarchy. So that was, that was a beautiful piece. And I'll, I'll end with uh, global to local decision making really got kind of shifted. You know, we have, we've all been used to for so long back in the 2010s and before that where decisions were made in these closed rooms, all safe and all that. Well, now all that decision making has gone experiential. So you can't just, you know, make a decision from a closed door far, far away. So if giving an example of that, in Toronto, you have city council now. If they were debating back then when there were still homeless people, 
anything to do with homelessness. They actually had to go and spend the entire debate. Uh, the whole council would meet for days in a homeless shelter and have a real experience of what that is as they were making the decisions. Maybe on a global scale, you might see that uh, Security Council from now on, uh, although we're working very hard to you know, uh, dismantle that as well, uh, the Security Council is actually having to, uh, you know, if they want to do military action, they then have to meet in the place where they've started that military action until the military action is over. And of course, the member states who didn't support that, they get to join in by a Zoom call from uh, the safety of their own home countries. So yeah, so there you go. Fabulous, fabulous. Catherine? I love the vision, Yannick. I can't wait for that. And, and like you, I'd be looking forward to being able to retire uh, in, in 2020 because the, the work of economic system change has been been achieved and the new normal has become well and truly the, the dominant agenda that everyone's excited about and knows what needs to be done to implement it. But a couple of the things I think you'd notice walking around a wellbeing economy in 2030 is the energy that we use would be all renewable, often micro-renewable energy provision, often run by community-owned organisations, and they're seen at the forefront of the sort of businesses that we will see flourishing in, in 2030. No longer will it be these massive top-down conglomerates that are extracting wealth to go up to those who are lucky enough to own shares and lucky enough to have their bonuses dependent on the on the shares. People will say, yeah, what were those shares? What was the, you know, the stock exchange? Now we'll have social stock exchange and community uh, shares and other mechanisms and we'll see businesses that are many more businesses that are purposed explicitly to deliver social and environmental returns so what we're seeing now today in 2020 the sort of beginnings of these sorts of business models that have been described as the emerging fourth sector will dominate the economic ecosystem in, in 2030 things like cooperatives social enterprises community enterprises, kicks, all those sorts of business models, right through from the, the ones that are quite close to what we used to know in back in 2030, right through to the much more radical, like the economy for the common good models, will, will be how people just by default, when they think about setting up a business, will gravitate to. And of course, our infrastructure no longer will be designed for petrol, but it will be designed for walking and community spaces. It won't be about shopping centres, it'll be about Wires. And that COVID crisis that we had in 2020, where people realised that they didn't want to be so busy anymore, will have really become the, the normal way of doing things. People will work shorter working weeks, they'll have more public holidays, they won't be so much at the beck and call of their employer. They'll be working because they have a sense of purpose and meaning, not because they're having to work three jobs on minimum wage just to put food on the table, but everyone will have enough to meet their basic needs and to undertake community activities, to care for their families, to get involved in the politics that Yannick was describing. So we won't feel so frantically busy. We'll feel calmer. We won't feel so precarious in terms of our, our financial security. And from that will come a huge shift in terms of how our, our public services operate and are paid for. We may see some hospital wings could be closed because people aren't being stressed and turning to drugs and alcohol to sort of self-medicate and try and get through their precarious, anxious lives. We might see fewer police walking around because people feel safe and protected just walking around their local communities. People will know each other more and look out for each other much more. And I think 
in a way, we don't need to imagine that because we're already seeing the beginnings of this wellbeing economy bubbling up around the world. And that's where I think a lot of folks who are working in this movement derive hope that will keep them going for the decade of massive change that we need. We need change across all levels of the system. And, and what's really great is that some of those big global geopolitical groupings that, that Yannick's talked about, the wellbeing economy, governments, partnership will be where most political cooperation happens. And this is a, a club of governments united not by how big their GDP is, but from a shared will and ambition to put collective well-being at the heart of policymaking. So there'll be a huge shift across all levels of people's lives in their time, even how they get their food. I mean, that people might have time to grow their food in their backyards and to share it with neighbours and take time to chat to neighbours. They won't have to buy so much package-laden pre-made goods that they just bang in the microwave after a long day at work where they're feeling pretty depressed and minded at the at the end of a job that doesn't meet their their need for sort of relationships and, and sense of purpose. So it's it's exciting layers and layers of shifts across all levels of people's lives and, and how we go about decision making, how we be, go about doing business, how we go about building out our cities and our towns and our communities. But we're just starting to see the beginnings of that emerge now, which makes 2030, that vision, seem potentially possible if we work hard enough. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I guess the best place to start, and I'll hand this one to you, Catherine, is with the question of what you mean by that term wellbeing economics. What is it? When we talk about the wellbeing economy, it's essentially an agenda for pretty substantial transformation of the economic system. And if you look at the, the economic system that countries like the UK and Canada had going into COVID, these were economic systems that were dependent on more and more economic growth as measured by GDP and a whole swathe of policy decisions, whether it's taxes or subsidies or incentives or even the sort of physical infrastructure that was provided by, by government and public sectors was designed to increase GDP growth. We see in people being told they need to become more employable. We see the environment used as an input to growth with all the damage to people and planet that that growth-orientated economic model brings with it. And a wellbeing economy agenda is about saying, well, hang on a minute, the economy should be a means to the end. And yes, we might need growth, but let's think about what sort of growth, in what circumstances, who it's for, who's, who's winning and losing out of that growth, how is it distributed? So at one level, it's quite a profound repurposing and redesign of the economic system. And from that repurposing away from GDP, away from constant growth, to one that says we need to explicitly and deliberately design our economic systems in a way that delivers collective well-being, calm those sort of suite of policies that we need. And that's cultivating different business models, that's designing our tax systems differently, perhaps even aiming for a concept I'm really excited about, this idea of pre-distribution rather than relying on the state to fix and redistribute at the end of the day. We currently spend so much money patching up the damage that is done in our effort to squeeze more growth out of a tired economic system. And we could avoid that if we had an economy that delivered things right first time round, that enabled people to live good quality lives without having to just damage them in the pursuit of growth. And then as almost an afterthought, turn to the work of social policy and, and charities, I should say, in terms of fixing them up and patching them up. So, so it's quite a profound turning of the tables in terms of, of what 
the economy is about. And it's, at its heart, it's about social justice on a healthy planet. It's about allowing humanity to determine the economic system rather than the other way around. Could you both give the listener a sense as we sit here in the middle of 2020 of the current state of play from where you look of this concept? Is it being adopted anywhere? Is it looking more likely or less likely? Who are the key pioneers? Well, I mean, I'll speak to the kind of the Canadian side. I mean, for I would say for the first time in a long time, I used to work with the UN for over a decade and trying to chug and push these along, these concepts at different levels. And I have to say that coming home and now going through this pandemic, for the first time, governments are asking, I feel, the right questions. At least our, our, our government here in Canada uh, has been digging deep into what it means, what quality of life actually means, and not just from a social ministry or an environmental ministry, but really the finance ministry. And I think that's telling, right? Because they, they're definitely attuned to something going on in the conversations amongst Canadians about what is essential, what's meaningful. Those are all the things that are showing up during a crisis. Probably the most powerful question I've received from, from the, the ministry uh, not too long ago was literally asking, look, like, what's your feeling? Why is it that you, we had to suspend the economic system in order to deliver what Canadians have needed during a crisis? And I said, wow, isn't that an amazing question? The usual time of normal, all that had to be paused so that you can deliver what Canadians need. How do we dig into that? How do we unravel that so that we make sure that we don't go back to a system that we would keep having to pause over and over and over again? So I think that's been the, the biggest piece that I've personally noticed. And of course, we've been sourcing from some of the, the pioneers that I'm sure Catherine will get into, but in particular, New Zealand being a comparative kind of structure and system to Canada and how uh, they started down the path of even the simple first step of well-being budgets. And that's being discussed a lot here in Canada at the moment. And, and my hope is that that becomes not just a federal thing, but how do we bring that down to our provinces, to our cities, to the places we live in and then we experience every day? I mean, I think what's really exciting is that the journey towards a wellbeing economy is not a step into the unknown because we know what it looks like through the, the perhaps small examples that we see every day around the world of communities, of businesses, of perhaps some of the more brave politicians who are rolling up their sleeves and starting to build it. Yes, perhaps in small scale, but it does start to paint the picture that this is not only desirable, but also really feasible if we can just support and nurture those pioneering examples. And so I think of all the initiatives in the circular economy agenda. We see, for example, all sorts of companies, you know, completely disrupting the previous linear way of manufacturing to recognise that we can't keep taking resources out of the earth, using them and throwing them away. So adopting different manufacturing processes. We see it in the businesses that are creating different business models, different ownership structures that put it at the very heart of their DNA, social and environmental returns, and have commercial activity as a vehicle to that rather than the other way around. We see it in community groups that are taking decisions in different ways, such as via participatory budgeting mechanisms, who are coming together to collectively provide for each other through things like community garden spaces, where they're not spending Saturday afternoons shopping and trying to sort of show their affiliation through consumption-orientated activities, but are literally rolling up their sleeves, getting dirt underneath their fingernails and growing produce for each other, spending time together in that collective provisioning. And we do see it in the corridors of power around the world, not yet near 
nearly enough, but we do see examples where our political leaders are recognising that the old recipes of assume that we could grow the economy faster and that would automatically translate to quality jobs, it would automatically translate to protection of the environment or at least enough resources to clean up after the damage. They're really starting to understand that we need to take a good hard look at those old recipes and update them massively for the challenges but also the opportunities that we find ourselves in today. And we do see some policymakers, often at the city level or the community level who are starting to enact that, whether that's shifting the infrastructure of our cities away from cars towards walking and more community spaces, whether it's through things like the wellbeing budget that we're seeing in New Zealand, but also places like Bhutan and tentative, I'd say, not nearly fulsome enough steps in Scotland where, where I'm based. One of the most exciting examples was a, a step almost this time last year from a, an agency, part of the Scottish government called Scottish Enterprise. And this time last year, they announced that they were going to shift their support for emerging budding businesses away from selecting who they would give support to purely on their growth potential to saying, actually, we're going to look for businesses that have the potential to address poverty, to speak to gender equality issues, to uplift human rights. And they're the sort of businesses that we're going to support. And I think that's a really good example of the sort of shifts we need. There's other governments, including New Zealand and Iceland, places like Slovenia, Finland, who are bringing in well-being frameworks for their decision making. Again, I think it's perhaps too tentative. We need to see them align to the policy decision and the budget process with much more rigour and, and robustness than they currently do. But we certainly see the steps of it. This isn't a step into the unknown. In a way, the next part of this agenda is in the world of policy entrepreneurs, the, these people within government who need the proof of the ideas, the proof of the theory, and just all the support and also the demand from hearing the demand from citizens, I think will really give this a boost along. And so those opinion polls that you referenced, Rob, at the beginning of the episode around how a vast majority of people are saying they don't want to go back to normal. What we need to do is translate that into much more, I guess, sense of resolve in the corridors of power that now is the time to really up the ante in getting the policy regime on the side of those pioneering examples because to date all those really exciting practices that we've seen around the world, whether it's businesses, whether it's community groups, whether it's cities, all those exciting practices happened almost despite the system rather than because of it. And it's very, very hard. It can be extraordinary, extraordinarily lonely and difficult when you're going against the grain. And, and what we need now is these sort of policy regimes to put some wind in the sails of those amazing examples that show us what a wellbeing economy can look like. I've also noticed in the last, probably again, related to, to the pandemic, an awareness of, at least here in Canada, but probably elsewhere too, I've been talking with other people, of, of how and where this economic system comes from, how it works, the code, the program, they're starting to just be an awareness now that, hey, people invented this, people can reinvent it. It was originally created by a very small group of people, 
Now, what if we embraced all the diversity that we have? Economics isn't just the field of experts. We get up in the morning, we walk to work, we feel the economy around us, we experience it emotionally, intuitively. So they're starting, and I think it's very early because I, I really, the economic literacy of people is pretty low. We've been led to believe, you know, by faith that you just believe in this and go for it. Now the questions are starting, and I think that could be a bit like, like Catherine was saying about the politicians needing to feel and understand that they're also being supported by, by people and citizens. That's that element also that has, that's starting to come into play now that the public is asking questions. You know, why do we have an environment ministry? Well, because there's something wrong with the economy. Why do we have social charity? Because there's something wrong with the, the economic system. So I think that also is a big, uh, a big shift probably in the last uh, few years at least. And if we move towards measuring well-being to a well-being economy, what are we actually measuring? And are, are there aspects of well-being that can't be measured? And are there enough that can be measured to make it meaningful? So this is a really, really interesting question because I think the debate is quite it's quite live at the moment, in particularly even how we define well-being. I mean, the concept of well-being is is relatively ancient, if, if you like, I mean, and quite familiar for, to people around the world, even though they might use very different terminology or different concepts to describe it. You could, but you can hear it in ancient religious texts. You can hear it in songs. You can see it in First Nations wisdom. I mean, this idea of having quality of life is an innate human aspiration. When it comes to sort of translating that to the concept of well-being, there's a huge spectrum of different types of well-being. Often some people will equate it with happiness, particularly the hedonic type of happiness, which can be perhaps a very fleeting uh, moment of, of pleasure or excitement. The other type is sort of the more eudaimonic, which is around the sort of the richness, sense of purpose, sense of meaning. They are both very individually focused. And I often prefer to talk about quality of life or collective or societal well-being to scale it up beyond the individuals because a society is not just the aggregate of individual feelings. It's about equalities and cohesion across those individuals and, of course, the natural world in which they live on. So when we describe a well-being economy, we describe it as social justice on a healthy planet. So it's about distribution. It's about opportunities. It's about people feeling in control, feeling connected, having enough to live a life in dignity. And in terms of translating that to measurement, I think that's a really tricky question because there's a, a lot of folks would say, well, perhaps you can measure it just by asking people how happy do they feel. And I'd say there's a risk in focusing too narrowly on that because perhaps the implication is that the onus of responsibility for change is just too much on the individual, perhaps saying to the individual they need to toughen up to be more resilient to perhaps undergo perhaps mental health treatment if, they, if their subjective well-being is relatively low, when actually the onus of responsibility is on the socioeconomic system. It's on our politics and how we structure our economy. We need to look at the circumstances in which people can or can't live flourishing lives. And so I talk about the two SCs of well-being, this duality. One is survival and coping, and that's that sort of comes from that conversation around focusing on individuals and just tallying up subjective well-being measures. And then the other SC is system change. And that's where the wellbeing economy agenda is firmly and proudly situated. And to measure that, we've got to look at things like in economic inequalities, wealth distribution, gender inequalities, how we're, how we're supporting natural ecosystems. The problem, though, in a practical sense, is that that very quickly becomes 
relatively sort of technical conversations, looking at parts per million or Gini coefficients or Palmer ratios or those sorts of questions, when actually this should be a conversation about how do people, you know, what are the opportunities people face? How are communities functioning? And so Yannick and I for a while have been kicking around I think a pretty exciting conversation, Yannick, but that may just be because you and I are complete geeks in this space, but around how can we better measure things in a way that also makes intuitive sense to people who don't do this sort of work for a living. And so we often talk about what if we could come up with a suite of cornerstone indicators that in and of themselves we knew correlated to some of the key drivers of collective well-being, but also were pretty funky in a way that made sense to everyday folk who weren't the policy wonks like those of us having this discussion now. And so the example that we use to illustrate that is the number of girls who ride their bikes to school. So imagine if that number was going up. We know that all sorts of important things for collective well-being are in place. The streets are safe. There are schools nearby. The parents have been able to afford a bicycle and, and afford food. So there's a decent standard of living there. In a global sense, the number of girls who are actually going to school rather than being sent out to work is also really significant. And so we, we were really hoping we could build this suite of cornerstone indicators that much better speak to and illustrate the sort of society we want if we had a well-being economy. Mm. Wonderful. Yannick, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, building on that too, it's like a lot of the same conversations with especially the political leaders uh, these days is the danger is if you get too quickly down into the technical speak first. So if you sort of say like, they, oh, okay, how do we measure this? We're going to have to commission a report and do some studies and put together a, a matrix of well-being and, and reinvent and this. And it's like the more you allow that kind of thing to happen, the less chance you're going to get the fundamental change you want. Because we're also trying to reinvent purpose of measuring and, and why and how. So so rather than say, okay, well, we got to come up with an Excel spreadsheet first and then figure out how to implement, it's actually to me is reverse engineering. So again, what are the qualitative aspects we're trying to reach? What is the, the overall purpose? And again, well-being economy for Canada cannot be one framework, right? It'll different parts of the country will determine well-being qualitatively speaking in different ways. The city of Toronto might measure it differently or define its its parameters differently than Montreal and that's perfectly okay. So how are you building a strong kind of a trellis, a bit of a of a weave uh, with some of the universality that comes across and then not get bogged down by, well, you know, we have to figure out the perfect measurement. And it's like, well, GDP isn't even a perfect measurement uh, for what it's supposed to do. And we're still using it, right? And we're making decisions with it. So I tend to also just say like, look, you know, we'll figure out the the, the exact or best or, or more optimal way of measuring it later. First, pick one uh, and let's just start. And then we'll, we'll do by iteration. We'll figure out what, how Canadians respond to that, how people actually perceive the decisions being made using that. And then we'll change and we'll adapt, which is exactly what the current system has done for the last, you know, 80, 100 years as well. So I think it's trying to extricate a little bit the, this obsession we have, again, like Catherine was saying, about the PPMs and the uh, exact percentage of rate of change and the quantities of this and really realizing this is really a, a new story we're trying 
Sanitel. And it's very much about the qualities that shape our lives rather than all these quantities. So I think, again, you know, especially now that we're, we're in the information age, even things like wonderful measures like Girls on Bikes, which I was going to put in my 2030 report because I, I thought that actually Catherine was going to say it, that, you know, 2030, the amount of young girls riding bikes after dark in the city of Toronto has significantly ballooned. And I've actually brought that up with the mayor. So uh, it's interesting to see the eyebrows rise on that one because there's a, an immediate understanding of what that actually means and the different uh, levels. And we have information technology that can model these things. We have, you know, machine learning, AI. Complexity now is, is not something that's out of reach for governments. It used to be in the 40s and 50s. It no longer is. So it's just figuring out again, how do you link the story of complexity of someone's real, real lived experience of well-being? How do you put that into something that you can use to make decisions rather than think it's a competitive metric? Although I'd love for countries to start competing on, I'm growing well-being faster than you. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> Fantastic. And so is, is well-being economics a form of capitalism or a replacement for it? Oh, wow. Uh, I get a lot of questions, uh, obviously, in the you know, kind of foundation that we are, very well-known environmental foundation in Canada. Oh, you're such an anti-capitalist. And it's like, well, A, uh, as an economist, I can easily at least answer, well, I wouldn't really know. You know, theoretical capitalism has never really existed. So what do you mean by capitalism? To me, words have a lot of power and you have to give them meaning. I personally would say, of course, well-being is if you want to use you know, words from the capitalistic vocabulary, which is something I do with, uh, with some of our decision makers, uh, it's like taking the power back with those words, right? Sort of saying, uh, sure, you can produce more stuff or you can produce more well-being. So I think to me, it's less about deciding, am I pro-growth, anti-growth, degrowth? Kind of again, what Catherine was saying earlier, well, actually, what do you want to grow? Um, so, so I think it's, it's a revolution in the sense of, of how we think about an economy. Like, you know, the, the word economy, we've, we're all, we wake up in the morning, it's all around us, history, you know, stewarding our home, the whole idea of managing, you know, things like that. That's kind of the ubiquitous form. It's always there. But how you think about what an economy should or shouldn't do, that's where the economics come in. And whether you decide to go down a very conventional path, which is obviously what we're, we're noticing now is failing us, and somebody's labeled that capitalism or neoliberalism or all these isms, uh, that's fine. I think well-being is humanizing, uh, and not just humanizing in an anthropocentric way, but humanizing uh, this concept of economics and our relationship to the natural world around us. So how how do we understand the interdependence we have with nature? How do we understand the interconnections we have with each other? Uh, and then how does that become the new operating system of this construct, this very human construct called economics? You know, So I don't think that answers exactly your question as a yes and no, but I don't tend to be bogged down by labels. Uh, I rather uh, want to see uh, the impact and the results of directions that we take. And, and for me, well-being brings economics down to everyone's level because that's all what we want, right? We, wanna, we don't want to live 80 years on this planet just to build sprockets for somebody else. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot more to existence and we've undervalued it for too long. Mm-hmm. Catherine? I think it depends on how we're defining capitalism. So as Yannick said, you know, words really, really matter. And one of the things that I've really come to realise since working for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which is an organisation that has members across the world, but 
because of that, I've been working much more with people based in North America than I had in my previous job. And it almost seems to me that the, the term capitalism, the way our colleagues in, in the US and, and maybe Canada, at least in my experience, when they're talking about capitalism, they're actually talking about markets. But I'm a political economist based for the time being in Europe. And for me, when I talk about capitalism, I'm talking about power how rents are extracted and how people's work gets siphoned off by those who own, you know, to use that Marxist term, you know, the means of, of production. And to me, they're, they're quite different definitions. So in a well-being economy, would there be markets? Absolutely. And so if that's your definition of capitalism, then no, well-being economy probably isn't anti or post-capitalist because we'd see, for example, cooperatives, you know, share trading with each other and, and so on. We'd have social enterprises selling things to each other, people going out for work and being paid for their work in a, you know, the labour market. But if you're talking about capitalism in the sense of huge inequalities of the control of the production and where rents get created and where rents are, are hoarded. We know through the work of Thomas Piketty and so on, just the extent to which our inequality is driven by the distribution of value shares within private corporations. So the more we see returns from people's work and, and also from the environment be siphoned up to pay shares, for example, pay economic rents or pay um, intellectual property payouts on people who are lucky enough to own and have control of those firms, the more we see economic inequality deepening. And so if we're defining capitalism that way, then I'd say absolutely a well-being economy is post-capitalist. So I actually, I got caught up about this quite a bit recently. I don't use the word capitalism and I don't use the word neoliberalism because like Yana, you know, they're, they're just words and they're defined differently and they're used to hurl insults at each other. I'd much rather talk about what is it that we're for? What is it we're wanting to work together to achieve, and that is an economy that is really designed for a different purpose, not to extract rents for those who have already got them. And all the political power and ability to rig the rules of the system in their in their benefit. I mean, I often say to folks, I, I don't go around saying the economy is broken because I think the economic system we've got and we've had coming into the COVID crisis is not at all broken. It is doing exactly what it is designed to do by people who have got their hands on huge amounts of wealth and resources and are able to leverage the political influence that comes with that and create systems that self-perpetuate their power and privilege. And so a wellbeing economy is concertedly about turning that on its head and rebalancing power. If that's post-capitalism, well, it depends what you mean by post-capitalism. And we find ourselves at the moment in the middle of many debates and discussions around what the post-COVID world might look like, what build back better might actually mean in practice. How can well-being economics inform the, these conversations? How And what would the response to COVID look like if it were based uh, on these principles? The term build back better is one I first heard a decade ago when I first joined the international organisation Oxfam. And I, and I joined and just a few weeks later, the earthquake in Haiti hit and I saw this organization you know, really mobilized to go and respond to that humanitarian disaster. And humanitarian colleagues then talked about build back better. And it's a term that struck me as being relevant to the economy 
ever, ever since. And I think now more so than ever, where we have seen a huge humanitarian disaster in the form of a pandemic strike economies around the world. And so this idea that comes for humanitarian international development space being applied to our economic systems, I think is sadly more apt than ever. But of course, we need to be explicit in how we define better. I think my sense of what better might be might be very, very different from folks, you know, who are sitting very nicely hoarding in their economic returns, for example, if they own a massive uh, online distribution company, not mentioning any names. And so for me, better is about really turning our attention to the, the structures of the economic system and saying it's not good enough, as we've talked about already, to rely on those old, outdated recipes and assume that wealth will trickle down. Better is essentially moving towards a well-being economy with all the multi-layers of changes that that requires. But I think it's it's really exciting to see how that ambition of building back better is, is getting traction and how we're now seeing, you know, politicians even take it up. I think the key thing is to hold them accountable for that and, and, and make sure it goes beyond being a fairly nice buzzword, translates into concrete steps that then do add up to the system change that we need to see. Yeah, and I'll, I'll lean into the power piece as well that, Catherine, you started just before, because I think the COVID experience we're going through right now, which we don't think we're anywhere near post-COVID at the moment, it's also allowing or unraveling the perceived power dynamics where, you know, you have big banks or big companies now having to ask for support and bailouts, not necessarily, well, some of them are bailouts, I guess, in the US side, from governments, right? So, so now you're realizing, again, you're starting to see very clearly what the actual power flows are. And now can some of the politicians start taking some of that power back for society, not for themselves, right? So that's also a, a tricky question. And, and I think this kind, this level of disruption, as opposed to the 2008 financial crisis, which we were sold a lot of propaganda from financial services in particular, that without us, you know, the, the whole world goes downhill. Not true. Uh, the inequality, of course, exacerbated in that crisis. Uh, and that's where, of course, the, the communities that have already been left behind by the system really suffered. Now we're seeing uh, even more of that. But in addition, we're seeing it affect so many different power levels in society that my hope is that as some countries, I don't think it's going to be the same for every country, speaking of our southern cousins, but I think in some countries you're starting to see an ability by government to realize, okay, wait a minute, we have a say in this. We're supposed to be the ones looking after the well-being of our citizens, of our people. How are we going to kind of restructure some of this so that we're not beholden down the road once again to these false illusions of power simply because of, of how many paper bills are in someone's pocket. So I think, you know, we're, we're, they're, they're starting to be the right conversations when it comes to building back better, especially from the social side. So there's a lot of different issues going on right now from the racial injustice, the you know environmental injustice, our, our indigenous peoples in Canada. That to me is also all linked to economics again, right? When you leave people behind almost on purpose, there's no reason why there's material poverty in a country like Canada. There's no reason why there's material poverty anywhere in the world, except for the fact that you're extracting from somewhere in order to give it to quote unquote the global north. So I think we're starting to see an unraveling of that myth 
of capitalistic power, if I want to use the little air quotes here, and maybe hopefully uh, at least some significant shifting away from that pre-COVID world of thought. And then, okay, what could that look like on the other side? And and the jury's still out. I mean, I, I don't know, right? but it's a hope that we're moving in a direction more of that distributing, that, that influence, that power, that redesign. That's why it's going to be so important that anything to do with designing well-being economies is not top-down, but really, really is, as one of the core principles of well-being economics is, participation. And it really gets not just consultation and here we have a plan. What do you think about it? No, co-creating that with all the different people and groups uh, in our countries. I think that's where the strength will be and and that's how you make it long lasting. To build on that, Yannick, in your walk through 2030, you talked about imagining a future where white men are no longer allowed to hold positions of any great responsibility. Is it a coincidence that the three countries exploring well-being economics seriously are all led by women? The municipalist movement in Spain talk about the feminization of politics. Does well-being economics represent something similar? Would it inevitably move us towards a more equal, a more fair and a more democratic world? We've had, you know, let's say if you go back deep enough in, in kind of Western cultural history, a couple thousand years of a very particular cultural perspective and of course, it's a male cultural perspective. I'm not trying to point fingers and sort of saying how, how evil and wrong. It's just it's a reality. So our Western culture has been predominantly shaped by one cultural perspective. And then when you move through time and you get to 20th century economics and you look again at moments in time like Bretton Woods and you, you look at the group pictures, it's the same, right? It's a perpetuation over and over and over of that particular mindset. And so it's like, okay, you, you had 2,000 years. Great. And you did some good. It was, it was good. There was, there was not just bad. There was good. Uh, now, now take a break, right? You move to the passenger side for a while and, and see what happens. What would happen if, if the city council of Toronto was entirely people of color and women of color in particular? What if we had a, a first prime minister in Canada, a person of color? What would that bring, not because of tokenism, but because of the entire richness of perspectives that, that you know, me as a white person can't experience in the same way, doesn't have that history? What would it look like? How would things shape? How would things change? When you're looking at it, like you were saying, that some of the most, what's touted as some of the biggest successes country-wise when it comes to COVID response, absolutely, right? They were all led by women. All our major, most of our public health officials at the highest level here in Canada are all incredible women. And they're leading in a different way. And it's that different way. How do you balance that with 2,000 years? <laughs> and then, so I think it, it's taking that, allowing that pause to happen so that you can certainly say, okay, let's give another perspective or more perspectives a chance to sort of get into that system, shift it in different ways, and maybe we'll find a new balance. And I think it's, it's now we have this moment. It's like, okay, let's, let's swallow some humble pie a little bit and move aside and see what happens. It cannot be worse. (laughs) Catherine? There is emerging evidence, and I I was involved in a piece of work um, with some colleagues of mine that we published in Open Democracy a couple of weeks ago, looking at those countries that were led by women leaders and their response to COVID. And it, it turns out there's a pattern here that countries led by women have had six times fewer deaths from COVID and are likely to be able to respond and emerge and, you know, build back better their economies better as as well. And partly that's because they didn't flinch 
in terms of taking the collective steps to protect the health and well-being of their citizens, whereas some of the other perhaps male-led countries that we'll all be familiar with <laughs> um, did flinch and took their time and you know, went into lockdown late after the, the virus had already got hold of communities and was already running rampant amongst health systems and so on. So there's some hard evidence on that. I mean, it is, I think, nice that the first three governments to create the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership were led by fairly extraordinary young women that have a, a shared sense that in the 21st century, development and national success is not just how big is your GDP, the male way of measuring, you know, how big are you? Um, but actually what they're saying is, well, the success in the 21st century is about embedding collective well-being and creating better lives for our citizens. I mean, they've now been joined by Wales, which is led by a bloke, but perhaps has a wider approach to building well-being in his country. Places like Hawaii, who have got you know, a feminist recovery package. Uh, and so there's some really exciting measures there to start to think about what does it mean to bring some of those values of really cherishing care work, also recognising that our current economic systems have, to a great extent, stood on the shoulders of low-income women. It's low-income women who are at the bottom of labour supply chains who are often doing the most important work that really makes a difference to people's lives. And we've seen that here in the UK with people suddenly realising just how vital nurses are and work in the care homes, which is often work that is much highly populated by women workers and just how vital that is, literally matters of life and death, as opposed to the perhaps more machismo economic activities like, you know, advertising or corporate lawyering, dare, dare I say it. So there is something about the wellbeing economy agenda that really nurtures and cherishes those activities and wants to create space and opportunity for care as well, rather than squeezing it out to the margins of our days when as we're too busy because we're trying to earn an income to put food on the table for our families to pay attention to that, but would say actually the opportunities and time and recognition of care is at the forefront of what a wellbeing economy is about. So I think it's about leadership, but it's also about what our systems are about and what they value and, and what their purpose to, to cherish and to promote over other activities. If people are listening to this and feeling inspired and they'd like in their own lives to begin the work towards bringing about a well-being economy, where do you suggest they start? Yannick? I'll refer mainly to like the context I work in, so a country like Canada, and I think there's 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 different pieces, right? We're we're also working, uh, we're a partner of the Wellbeing Economies Alliance, and one of the things we we're working on now is establishing a Canadian hub of that, and I think part of that will be how do you engage uh, citizens directly into actions, a variety of actions from raising awareness, education, uh, you know, getting politically active. I think is is very important. Canadians can be relatively apathetic sometimes when it comes to politics, uh, but I think this could be a hook to bring people right in uh, across all kinds of ideological spectrums. And because we have a very odd or maybe, I don't know, unique kind of governance structure, it's not always about thinking, well, what is the prime minister thinking? And that's, that'll change everything. We have so much opportunity to change things at a very local level. A lot of the big cities have quite a bit of power when it comes to changing how cities work and what they deliver. And of course, then in our provincial area. So that political kind of activism and not antagonistic necessarily. This is also the beautiful hook with well-being is it's not always the immediate uh, us against them fight right away. It really can rally people together around all the different components that make up well-being for an individual to a collective 
understanding how systems work, how how the coding, how the program, you know, how do you go from an algorithm, which is all about how quickly do you eat your way through nature and convert it to money using the cheapest labor. So that's the current algorithm. Is that what you want? You know, and if it's not what you want, well, get active, redesign that algorithm, help connect. We have the internet, we're able to do this. The first steps that I would see is, is really the ability to reach out across your perspectives. You know, Canada's an extremely diverse country. Again, we undervalue that diversity. Uh, we're still stuck in a lot of old systems and old cycles. How do we break out of that rut and sort of bring people all in, listen to each other, and then say, okay, this is the purpose of the Canadian economy henceforth. Now you politicians can figure out how to track that and measure that, sure, but this is the purpose we want. Fabulous. Catherine? Well, really briefly, I mean, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance website is a great place to start. So it's weall.org. We've got loads of resources. We've got a table that I think we're getting a lot of great comments on called From the Old Way to the New Way that gives people a sense at a glance of how the current system tries to deliver across a whole wide range of different topics and how in a wellbeing economy that might be different. And it's a live document. So people are always contributing ideas and suggestions to flesh that out and they cover more examples. We've also got a really lovely platform called We All Citizens. And that for people wherever they are in the world, no matter what work they're doing, but if they want to share hope and support each other and link up with others who are part of this movement to transform our economic system, to make it more humane and more sustainable, We All Citizens is the place to be. And we have talks on there. We share ideas. People can notify others about events, ask questions, offer help. And it's just about really starting to deliver and walk the talk of that collaborative, supportive collegial cooperative way of undertaking activities that needs to be at the heart of a well-being economy so there are two places to start is there anything that you wanted to say in response to our what if question that i haven't asked you the right question for uh, any last thoughts well i thought the question is you know what if we valued better you know what really and how we designed our economic system according to those values and i think it's a really astute question that was asked because our economic system to date has been so profoundly misaligned to what people really, really do value. I've been involved in deliberative democracy processes in, in Scotland, in India. Colleagues have conducted one very similar in Namibia. And these processes, if you sit down with people wherever they are in the world and ask what really matters to them, what you're given is fairly similar answers. And it's not about having these massive footballer-type salaries or having the biggest house. It's about relationships. It's about dignity. It's about good local environment, health and safety. And so that's something that is innately human to us. This is what people value wherever they are in the world. And the, the saddest thing is just how misaligned our economic systems have become. And, and so what a wellbeing economy agenda is about and what the, all the efforts to create it is about closing that gap and saying we need the economic system to be going into bat for those sorts of values to be designed in a way that delivers what we need out of the economy rather than hoping and crossing our fingers that if we just grow the economy faster without regard to people or planet, just something may or may not come from that. It might trickle down. So I think the question is an absolutely brilliant one that we need to keep asking of our economic systems. You know, what is it valuing? What's it purposing? What's it cherishing? What's it nourishing? What's it enhancing? And what is it helping power down? Because if we don't keep having those questions, we'll keep running around with the same old recipes, the same old ideas that have got us into the, the challenging places that we are today. 
when I first got your email and kind of read through a bit of the background on the question, the first thing that also popped in my mind, this happens quite regularly, I, I often ask back, like, okay, to a politician or even, a, you know, a citizen, why hasn't it happened? Like, can we ask ourselves, is it that we don't want well-being and happiness? We don't want that for our lives. We don't want that for our children. Of course, the answer to that is always, no, 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 we, we, we want it, we want it, we want it. So then it's, it's trying to figure out and lean into the question of what, what prevents. Why by, you know, if you're, you're kind of thinking 2030, you could have gone with the what if and, and imagine this success. And also a 2030 where, why didn't we get there? And, and I think it's an important kind of piece because then we start to realize there's very, very little, there's very, there are very few reasons why it's not happening, but those reasons are extremely powerful. Like the inertia, right, that's there, held by a very few people. I don't necessarily believe in conspiracy theories and cabals that there's literally a meeting every quarter and we're gonna, you know, the world order. I think it's the self-reinforcement in, in the beliefs, almost the religiosity. How do you challenge that in a gentle way? How do you invite in a conversation to create the new parables, right? To create the new stories without dismissing, without pointing the fingers to the past, or just sort of saying, okay, well, we're here today. If you agree that how much production Canada does in a year is not really that important to you, well, what do you want it to be? And so, so I think understanding and unraveling a bit of the why hasn't it happened. We don't need new knowledge. We don't need new science. We don't need new technologies anymore to have clean, green, creative societies. But of these other things that stop, that inertia of the few, uh, and how do we overcome that? How do we burst the bubbles of the false stories? Wonderful. Thank you both so, so much for joining me. It's been a, it's been a delight to have you here. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. I'd also like to thank Pamela Barnes for her fantastic what-if question, you for listening, and Ben Adicott for production and our beautiful theme tune. See you next time. Mm-hmm.